hosts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. So much for the summer doldrums. After the gain we saw in July, the S&P 500 piled on another 3% in August, closing above 2,900 in the process. Including dividends, the S&P closed out August with a better than 9.9% total return year to date. That's pretty darn close to the 10% total return that's often associated with 20% gainer type years. We all know the summer is supposed to be dead time for your money, yet two of the three best months this year have been July and August. If down is up, does that mean up might be down and the usually great fourth quarter could turn out to be a dud? Anything's possible, right? Let's not forget, we have midterm elections coming up and they could buoy the market as they've historically done. Welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner here at the XML Financial Group. So glad you could join us. If you have a question for the show, email us. Email us at podcast, which is plural, podcast at xmlfg.com. Once again, it's podcast at xmlfg.com. We took a couple of weeks off in August. And then we came back and we talked about philosophy. And we really haven't talked about the big picture here in a while. So today, we're going to spend some time on that very thing. Keep in mind, I'm a value kind of guy, and I spend 90% of my time on the fundamentals and only about 10% on the macro or, or big picture. So consider yourself forewarned here. Over the last couple of years, The markets have been enjoying the benefits of global synchronized growth. That's the big theme. Everyone was doing well. Well, today we're seeing global desynchronization. But the good news is the U.S. is leading the other developed economies by a wide margin. The U.S. is surging because we've had two years of fiscal stimulus that's making its presence felt. But the other major developed world economies are softening and the emerging markets are facing what I think are considerable pressures. My guess is for more of the same, the same old, same old. There's no dispute about the U.S. growth outlook. The economy is flying high and I think it'll continue to outdistance its developed market peers for the rest of the year. And next, S&P earnings per share growth should maintain its better than 20% pace for the rest of the year. Next year's 10% growth consensus, well, that may be a bit ambitious because this year's dollar appreciation probably hasn't shown up yet. Let me give you a refresher here. As the dollar gets stronger and rises relative to other currencies, that means you can buy more euros, rupees, Swiss francs, what have you. You can buy more of those for your dollar multinational corporations that have revenues overseas where sales are done in these euros, rupees, etc. Well, that translates 
back into less dollars because it takes more foreign currency to buy dollars. Thus, as the dollar strengthens, it means lower earnings for multinationals, uh, multinationals domiciled here in the U.S. The constituents of the S&P 500, well, they get about 40% of their revenue from outside the U.S. You get the idea. We haven't seen this show up yet. I haven't heard too much made about it on the earnings conference calls, but you would think it would have to be an issue going forward. In the long run, this decoupling can't go on forever, but the U.S. is a comparatively closed economy, so we do have room to run in the short term. I don't think this is the time to go bottom fishing in the emerging markets. I've seen articles that have alluded to this, but I don't think it's time yet. We've seen the trouble that Turkey has run into, and I think issues could arise in places like Brazil, Argentina, Indonesia, Chile, and a few others. Emerging markets in general are loaded up with debt, and a good bit of that debt is denominated in U.S. dollars. If the Fed keeps raising rates and the dollar continues to rise, well, you could have some serious problems. I'm not predicting anything like 18 years ago when long-term capital, that was a hedge fund that almost brought the world to its knees. No, I think U.S. banks are much better capitalized and better insulated from, from the emerging market exposures. I think the European banks are much more exposed and that that's why the developed markets will probably underperform relative to the U.S. I've often been asked about my asset allocation and why don't I always have X percent in overseas market or emerging markets? And my answer is twofold. One, I prefer to invest where I know the rules of the road. I understand the accounting here in the U.S. I understand the basic legal framework here, but I have no clue about those things in, say, Indonesia. And number two, I already have exposure. I already have exposure through my companies domiciled here in the U.S. As I said just a minute ago, about 40% of the revenues on the S&P come from overseas. I think I'm already exposed. now. There will come a time where the emerging markets are going to be so compelling that you can't ignore them. And we'll talk about that time when it comes, but it ain't right now. The bottom line is the U.S. is outgrowing its developed market peers, and there is nothing on the immediate horizon that suggests a reversal is in store for us. I think the superior corporate earnings growth and dollar strength should allow the U.S. to outperform the overseas markets well into next year. If you have a bunch of ADRs of foreign stocks, well, I'd ask myself why. Maybe it suits your needs. Maybe it doesn't. But you should at least ask your question why. With that said, I wouldn't be overly aggressive with my domestic stocks either. People seem to be pretty optimistic, and the more optimistic people get, the little more uncomfortable I get. Let me touch briefly on the income markets. I haven't been a buyer of many bonds over the last few years because I don't think they make as much sense for a lot of people, at least not like they used to. Let's face it, you just aren't getting enough for the risk you have to assume, at least not in my opinion. 
if you ask me, your investment portfolio should be based off of what you need to achieve rather than just trying to get some market type returns. If you come up with a sound financial plan that takes into account where you are and where you want to be, well, it's going to tell you what types of rates of return you need to achieve. That's just common sense. When you do such a plan, it should inevitably account for inflation because you want to increase the purchasing power of your money, not just have it grow. And what I mean is, if you own a 1% CD and inflation is at 2%, well, you're losing your purchasing power over time. You're getting 1% and the cost of milk, butter, gas, well, they're all going up 2% a year. That means you can't buy as much next year. So for the sake of argument, let's say you, your plan calls for a 6% rate of return and you're accounting for 3% inflation or saying it another way, you need whatever inflation is plus a 3% return on top of that to grow your money and to grow your purchasing power. Is a 3 or 4% bond going to help you get to where you want to be? Probably not. Not in that case. You might buy some bonds for safety or other reasons, but they don't make as much sense as a long-term investment right now. Rates have gone up. A 10-year treasury last year at this time yielded about 2%, and now it's almost 3%. So in general, the value of your existing bonds have probably gone down. And you might see bond yields increasing even more on the long end. And I want to thank Todd. Todd is our chief of making sure everything runs smoothly day-to-day officer here. At least that's my title, title for him. But Todd is a smart guy, and he knows the income markets because he's dealt with them for eons. And he pointed out to me that a little-known tax quirk, quirk is about to expire without going into a tremendous amount of detail and spending the whole show on it. The bottom line is pension funds had a big incentive to buy bonds in their pension fund, and that incentive goes away in a couple of days. In other words, you could see more supply in the market in less demand. My point of all this, because probably isn't clear yet, you should have a well-thought-out financial plan in place and have an appropriate allocation to stocks, bonds, and cash that helps you in trying to achieve the returns that you need to achieve. We're living longer, and some of the rules of thumb from 10 years ago may not be appropriate now. So have a plan. We need to step away. And when we come back, we'll do a stock roundup, as it were. This is Eric Whiteman on Common Sense Investing, and we are back in a moment. You've worked hard. You've saved and invested. Now you want to make sure all your hard work pays off. Now's the time to start planning for that future. Hi, this is Eric Whiteman of the XML Financial Group. No two people have the same goals and values. We can help you craft a framework for making a lifetime of smart financial decisions that's right for you. Now's the time to get the advice you deserve. Call us at 301-770-5234. 
Well, thank you and welcome back to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman. So glad you could join me today. We're going to be out at the Montgomery County Children's Business Fair, not this weekend, but the weekend after. That's Saturday, the 22nd from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's at the Rockville Town Square. If you get a chance, come out and support these business leaders of tomorrow and the community. And if you can make it, well, make sure you find me and say hello. We are going to do a stock roundup. I'm going to cover, or at least I'm going to try and cover, five stocks in the next five or seven minutes. These are stocks that I've talked about over the last six months, and hopefully it'll all get us up to date. The first one is Berkshire Hathaway, symbol BRK, and we buy the B share, so it'd be BRKB. I think this is a core holding for practically everyone, but you do have to do your own research and see if it's right for you. When you buy Berkshire, you're getting a collection of great businesses that are both publicly and privately held. Things like Geico Car Insurance. Burlington Northern Railway, Coca-Cola, and let's not forget the latest purchase, a whole bunch of Apple, which we'll talk about in a minute. The big news over the last six months, besides the big Apple purchases, has been the change in the way Berkshire repurchases shares. Berkshire had the guideline of buying back shares when it was under 1.2 times book value, and they changed that. They changed it to buying back stock when Warren Buffett and his cohort, Charlie Munger, felt that the stock was trading below its intrinsic value. So there are no hard numbers here. You actually have to sit down and figure out what you think Berkshire is worth. But to make things a little bit simpler for those of you at home, I would say if you can get it at 1.3 times book value. Over the long run, you probably won't be disappointed. Now, Value Line thinks book value for next year is going to be about $153. 153 times 1.3 gives you about a $200 stock price. So if Berkshire goes below $200, I'd be a buyer. Actually, since it's a core holding and such a high quality company, I'd even buy half now if I didn't own it and wait to buy the other half if it got under 200. Apple, symbol AAPL. They've done a great job across the board. There's no doubt about it. They're the first company to be worth a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars. Even still, Apple is priced about the same as the average company in the S&P 500. And this stock has been on fire the last month. Well, last month and a half, and it's gone up by about 15%. If Apple were to get back to about 205, it's about 223 right now. If it got back to about 205, I'd be a buyer. At 205, that's about 16 times what I think they earn next year, which I think would be a bargain price. What can I say? I'm cheap. The next one is DR Horton, symbol DHI. Despite rising rates, rising interest rates, rising mortgage rates, the home builders remain highly optimistic. You're seeing some mixed messages in this area also. Most of the home builder stocks 
have been moving sideways, just kind of blah. I think things are a little unclear here. Lumber prices have fallen from their lofty heights, which should help profits. But a tight labor market has seen construction wages accelerate at the fastest rate since coming out of the financial crisis. Thus, the margin picture is a little sketchier than it has been. I'd hold on if I'm an owner, and if it came back to maybe $42, I'd start looking again. Last week, I talked about CarMax, symbol KMH, or uh, KMX, excuse me, KMX, that's CarMax. The stock is trading around $80, $81 today as I speak. If you have a better than five-year time horizon, I think this is one you should look at. I think they have plenty of runway for growth over the next few years. At $80 a share, they're trading at about 16 times what I think they'll earn next year, which is still cheap for them historically, but I'd much rather buy them around $76 because, well, I'm just cheap. What can I say? Go back and listen to last week's podcast if you get a chance. I go a little bit further into the business. And the last one I'll do today is Chevron, excuse me, Chevron, CVX. Today, it's trading around 115, paying close to a 4% dividend on top of that. I like the integrated energy companies still. Integrated means they have both the upstream and the downstream part of the energy business. The upstream is where they drill and they get the oil and gas out of the ground. And the downstream is where they refine that into a finished product like gasoline. After years of spending on new projects and generating little, if any, free cash flow, Chevron is starting to see the benefit of all their past spending. I think Chevron CVX is a buy under $120. You can bet that I own all of these personally. Well, that's about all we have time for today. We're working on a couple of new ideas, but we have to make sure our clients accumulate them first because uh, before we talk about them, because, well, that's what they pay us for. We'll be back next Wednesday. And until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow them. Okay, you've listened to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talked about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and may or may not necessarily be those of the XML Financial Group. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, no. You should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I'd suggest you get someone who's qualified in these areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.